Hey, welcome back to Eat Crime Bites Season 2 now, Episode 1. And this is the conclusion. This is Act 3 of James Zong. If you're informal with him, you can call him Jimmy, too. He is an individual back in 2012. He was 22 years old, and he was, like most good people, out there buying cocaine on the Silk Road. And he wanted some of the money that he put into it back because he bought all the cocaine that he needed. And he found a bug where he could actually extract more money than he put into it. And he said, aha. And he just started making himself some coin off of the Silk Road. And if you haven't listened to our first two acts, I got to say, you have to go back and listen to them because there's so much good detail <laughs> that you're probably missing. If you're jumping into here of just, you know, how he did the attack and what he did after he was caught and how they caught him and so forth. And we're going to jump right into sentencing now. And one question I wanted to answer for you, and I've been kind of alluding to this throughout the first two acts is I said that Ross Albert, the owner of Silk Road contacted Jimmy Zong at one point when the Silk Road was still running. And there was like this message service on it. And basically Ross must have known that money was missing and must have traced it to James Zong and contacted him and said, hey, how did you just rip me off? Most normal people probably would run and not answer him or something like that, especially if you know the case, because um, there was like, you know, hitmen and stuff involved with the whole Silk Road. But James, James answered him. He just said, hey, I double clicked on the withdrawal and I got Double, my, double the amount of money back. And instead of Ross getting upset or anything else, he just said, hey, thanks, and tossed him a couple extra Bitcoin. So he actually made Bitcoin based upon just telling the owner of the website how he got the Bitcoin out of the website, which is just, to me, amazing. And could possibly be one of the reasons why he's just surrendering Bitcoin when the police come to him. If you remember, in the last act, we talked about there's this huge $3.4 billion forfeiture that that James Ong had to go through, but he also started giving him extra Bitcoin. There was something like a thousand extra Bitcoin at a later date where he just said, ah, here you go. And, you know, this is one of the spots that could have come from. And it could have come from the fact that he was an early adopter of Bitcoin back in 2009, and he was mining hundreds of coins a day when it was brand new. And you can imagine 2009 to 2022, 2023, when he was caught, that's a huge, huge appreciation value for Bitcoin. All right. So in the sentencing process, if you're not familiar with it, there's kind of two components with it. There's the government arguing you should get, usually there's a government arguing you should get a really rough sentence. And then there's the defense saying, Hey, this person's not so bad. Please go lenient on him. He's not you know, it was just a one-time lapse type of thing. And in that defense process, typically people will write letters and memos to show their support or talk about the character of the defendant during sentencing. So between March and April of 2023, there were a whole bunch of sentencing letters and memos. And I read through all of them. There was several. There was probably like seven to ten of them. And one thing was very clear. All his friends said he was a caring guy that would literally drop anything he was doing to go help them out. And in a minute, I'm going to give you some reasons probably of why he does that. 
His friends, and I found this to be, oh, Seth, this killed me when I read it. His friends said he had little family, and I was like, that's sad. But the family he had never celebrated his birthday or any holidays with the guy. And I just, <laughs> I like, I had to pause for a moment. I was like, I couldn't even imagine growing up in that environment. You're going to see how his environment kind of sculpted where he ended up in computers here. So since he didn't have a bunch of family to support him, he didn't have moms and dads, brothers and sisters to write letters and support him. He has character references from friends only. So for good or bad, that's that's what he has in his file. Yeah, so to elaborate on some of this, um, we learned a couple things about Jimmy James Zong uh, that I think definitely contributed to, I mean, everyone should be thinking, okay, so, we find out how much he stole, which is a staggering amount. Everyone knows what Bitcoin generally is. What is it up to 20 or $30,000 per coin these days? So right now it's all fractional just because of how big it is. Um, but we learned something very key. One, we learned that he did not spend much of his haul. The court documents tell us that he actually held on to everything until like 2017, five years after the original withdrawals from Silk Road, that he only used some of his Silk Road uh, Bitcoin. But it was only like 4% of it, right? So of the 51,000 and some odd Bitcoin, uh, sorry, of the 53,000 rather, he only used like 50, uh, sorry, like under, under 3,000 of them or under 4,000 of them. He still maintained over 51,000 of them. My math is wrong. It was a much smaller number. It was only like a couple of thousand Bitcoin that he kind of used. Um, so of the missing 4%, uh, he used about 3% for personal and business purposes. Remember, he is a co-owner of that real estate development trust. Um, he gave away around 258 Bitcoin as gifts to friends and another 250 were stolen from his home, which is kind of weird because I guess it was a physical version of the Bitcoin. Um, but he also reported all of the Bitcoin sales whether connected to Silk uh, Road or not, on his tax return. So he wasn't even really hiding that he had all this money. He wasn't laundering it, um, which I think definitely was a mitigating factor here. Yeah, the fact that he put it on his taxes, because usually usually when I, I do research into these cases, what happens is a criminal makes a ton of money doing illegal stuff, and one of the things that they tack on there is, you didn't pay taxes on all that illegal money that you yeah. stole. And in this case, I don't even think they can do anything if they wanted to, because he actually claimed it and paid taxes on it, which was incredible. I put that in the slide because I just thought it was the most incredible detail here. Now, Zong may be on the autistic spectrum. Part of the sentencing process, you usually evaluate the defendant to see if they're competent to stay in trial, what type of mind frame they might have been in during the, the crime and so forth. So there was a doctor that looked at um, James and said he's on the autistic spectrum. If you're not familiar with it, I'm going to give you a few key pieces to kind of get you to understand why that works well with computers. The DSM, which is sort of like the encyclopedia of um, mental health, describes it this way. It says that it's a social disorder. It, ha it can be characterized by severe sustained impairment in social interaction and the development of restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, and activities without other language and cognitive developmental delays. And what that says is a person will 
typically look normal. It's not like you can look at a person and go, oh, this person's on the autistic spectrum. And a lot of times thinking is very rigid and very algorithmic, um, to put it in computer terms. Like if you don't know what that word is, it's like um, an algorithm in computers is like a recipe for cooking. It's how you, a computer works. And a lot of times that logic flows very well with um, the being on the autistic spectrum and computers kind of just start to feel like home to some individuals in that, that category. Now, there were a couple interesting things when the doctor evaluated Mr. Zong and said, you know, they're talking about the computers and what the computers mean in Zong's life. And he said, it provided an escape for me from home because he did, you know, he had family issues from school and Seth's going to tell you about some school issues coming up here. That was pretty shocking, but he says he got on the computer every single day. He learned how to program computers in middle school. And if you're not a programmer and you're like, is that, you know, is that advanced? Yes. I'm telling you that's advanced. Most, most middle schoolers don't make it the prerogatory to go out and learn a programming language. So he's advanced is what that's saying. And he, in his words, this is the doctor quoting him. He says he spontaneously reported that the computer allowed him to fantasize about quote unquote, making up the perfect life or something. So it was his escape. That was where he felt the most comfortable. And that's what led him down the road to uh, being able to pick out the cybersecurity issue in Silk Road is because he has this whole background and understanding of programming. And he just, he probably understands computers inside and out. And he, he just saw it and understood it and exploited it. Yeah. I mean, and this is where we started. I think episode one where, or the first part of this episode rather, um, where I have a very good friend of mine who got her P on or sorry, her doctorate, right? Doctorate or her graduate degree, but got an advanced degree. Um, and her dissertation was on, uh, autism in the cyber world, which apparently her, her theory is, you know, way more often than not, people who are actively successful in cyber crimes or very into it are probably on the spectrum. And so that resonated with me when this case came up. Uh, so I'm not terribly surprised by it. And I think it's for the reasons Jones just mentioned. But we also learned that there were some other mitigating factors here that the courts considered when they sentenced him. Uh, he had a tough time in school. So the court documents indicate that he, um, that Jimmy Zong, James Zong, reported that the most traumatic building experience, clearly amongst many, was, quote, one kid pantsing him at a football game. Uh, for those of you who have never been pantsed, it is traumatic. It's happened to me. Um, while the junior if you've in had high a school, sibling, If you've had a sibling, you've probably been pantsed at some point in your life. <laughs> I know I have. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, yeah, it was fairly commonplace and ubiquitous in the 80s and 90s for sure. Maybe hopefully with the anti-bullying stuff, it's less so now. Uh, while a junior in high school, he recalled another student pulling his pants down in front of other people at a football game. Makes you wonder, maybe you shouldn't go to those games. Um, he also recalled that this same student would just walk up and punch him. He recalled, he always hated school, at least upstairs in my house, I was by myself being on a computer. So, you know, um, now what's interesting is in a vacuum, I'm not convinced that the government would have consolidated all these mitigating factors enough to give him the sentence that they did. 
but uh, we'll go through what ultimately he received here and maybe we'll talk for a few minutes about why. So you can imagine he wants to escape and his escape is computers. So a little bit before this crime in 2009, this thing, Bitcoin, is out on the internet and him being a programmer and into the internet, he's going to know about this. Early adopters, when you would mine Bitcoin, it was fairly easy to spend a, just a tiny amount of money and and make many coins. Today, in 2023, you have to spend a ton of money and you get barely anything if you're if you get anything mining anymore. So mining coins back in 2009 was very easy in comparison to today. So he was able to get a couple hundred coins a day. And it sounds like this guy didn't spend a ton of money unless it's these categories we're about to talk about. So when he didn't spend it, it appreciated. Okay. Now, yeah, imagine there's a kid. I'm going to say kid. He's 20, about 22-ish. There's a kid who hasn't had family, doesn't have a lot of friends, autistic spectrum, who just got a shit ton of money through Bitcoin. What's he going to do? He wants to fit in. He wants to make friends, right? So he goes out, he buys alcohol, starts drinking excessively to the point of blacking out. He buys cocaine on the weekends for several years. And that's what led him to the Silk Road later on and find this bug. He liked to display large amounts of cash because, you know, to some people that thinks I'm going to get a bunch of friends if I have a whole bunch of cash on me. Now, oh, you have to sit down for this one. This is what blew my mind in this case. He gave away Bitcoin as gifts. And you were probably like, oh, yeah, a couple hundred here, a couple hundred there. No, fucking millions of dollars of Bitcoin to his quote unquote friends um the court paperwork says it was valued almost three million dollars at the time <sighs> crazy right so basically he's he's trying to buy friends you know he's using the only thing he knows that he has to get people to want to spend time with him so when the money runs out do you think his friends stick around most likely not later on the the talking to the doctor and so forth, Jimmy said that, you know, he has just few remaining friendships. The more majority of the people that came for his money left when his money left too. Right. And he had never been married. Doesn't sound like he has a female in his life. There's a point where he takes Bitcoin, transfers it into cash to look like a high rolling motherfucker with $700,000 in cash in front of his friends, right? Because if you have that much cash, what are you gonna, or that much Bitcoin, what are you gonna do with it? You're gonna turn it into cash and hopefully you get friends out of it. He wanted this for, and this is his term, to have a case full of money like the movies. So he's just trying to live his dream at this point. He hoped that flashing money around would impress a female into having sexual relations with him. He said, after all that, his plan didn't work. Surprise. He would give away small devices with 50 Bitcoin on it as gifts. And sometimes some of these gifts, like the individual gifts were worth $1 million each. So it wasn't like it was split up a bunch of tons of people, you know, a little bit at a time. He was giving some friends just huge chunks of change. 
I'm actually looking up the current value of Bitcoin just because I'm curious what that would be. So right now, Bitcoin is trading at $29,180 US, right? So, uh, you know, times 50. I mean, I think one of the bigger issues I would have had, whether I was a lady looking uh, on a date with him and suddenly pulls out a, you know, a suitcase full of money to make sure that there is sexual relations involved or, hey, buddy, I want you to be my friend. Here is a phone. And on that phone is preloaded 50 Bitcoin for you. At least in 2018, 2019, you would know that that's ostensibly worth a lot of money. I think there would be a huge, my bullshit meter would have been pegged in the red, right? Um, and that's what's so kind of sad about this is that it wasn't bullshit. He just didn't, you know, he was trying to, you know, use his money to, you know, become friends with people. And, um, I, you know, I think it's probably an age old story and it is actually ultimately very sad. Um, and I think a lot of this also was part of the mitigating factors that went into his sentencing. So let's talk about the actual sentencing, Jones. So um, the defense asked for at this point, the defense asked for a sentence of five years of probation, home detention. So they want James to not be in prison. Okay, so keep that in your mind because we're going to switch gears now because the defense just said, hey, all these reasons that, that Jimmy shouldn't go to prison. The government gets their turn, and that's why... I'm going to turn this over to Seth. All right. So what do the government want? So the government had a sentencing memorandum regarding uh, James Zong, and they respectfully submitted this memorandum back in April of 2023. So very recently, uh, there was a uh, pre-sentence investigative report and the party's plea agreement. So there was a plea agreement. Um, but basically, the defendant's stipulated guidelines was 27 to 33 months which is not nothing, right? I mean, that's, you know, uh, plenty of time. And the probation office recommended a below guideline sentence of 24 months in prison or two years. And even if he did the full 33 months, he never would have really probably done the full 33 months because he's not a violent criminal. He probably would have gotten maybe two thirds of that and then time for, it's you know, time served. Um, so the question then becomes, well, wait a second. Why does he even need imprisonment? So. In the 51 months before law enforcement's search of his residences, he did spend about $16 million of uh, Bitcoin on proceeds, right? Spending lavishly on real estate investments. We know that he's, like I said, a co-owner of a real estate investment trust, luxury products, travel, hotels, nightclubs, and other expenses. And based upon the price of Bitcoin on the day of the search, it would have been valued at over $142 million. Based on the price of Bitcoin today, it would have been a little bit less, about 61 million. But the idea is whether it was $140 million worth of stolen goods gained or 60 million, there's gotta be imprisonment. The problem is against the total value of the amount that he was worth, which was about 3.2 billion, it was literally a drop in the bucket. So now we talk about all the different character letters that came from his friends that he paid. And again, from the court documents, uh, although the Zong was uh, young at the time of the fraud, as he grew older, he did not take steps to rectify his crime. Instead, he continued to live off of and spend the crime proceeds, although in a very, very de minimis fashion compared to the whole. In fact, his spending escalated over time up until the search. As for the character letters, as counsel, this is defense counsel, sorry, this is um, plaintiff's counsel. Several of the writers are indebted to Zong, having each received millions of dollars of gifts from him, albeit perhaps unknowingly, in the form of Silk Road crime proceeds. Specifically, three of them each received one of those 50 Bitcoin, um, you know, uh, devices, right, which was today worth about 
1.4 million at the time of about double that, about 3.3 million. Yeah, it's crazy. So the government's argument is all those people that said he was a nice guy, he paid them. Right, exactly. So what do they actually get? We get to the sentencing and we did all that prediction. It ends up being one year and one day. So I said, when I kept going through this case, I was like, man, this feels like it's going to be lenient. Feels like it's going to be lenient. And then what Seth said, there was recommendations under the guidelines and so forth. And I, I have to say, I think it's probably because he cooperated so much. We've, if you listen to our other episodes, we don't have defendants that cooperate this much. So also they recommended that he be placed in a federal prison camp. That's close to, um, his home or, you know, where he resides. So that way he can be close to his friends and he is ordered to surrender for the service of sentence by July 14th, 2023, which just happened to be a day or two with, I researched this. It just happened to be like, he was reporting to prison when I was researching this and it all just kind of came together on one day. It was pretty cool. So by the time you hear this, he should be in prison. Um, when we recorded this, he was, uh, just, just about to go in. So one thing that we were considering is given that we've seen other cases where the amount of money that was stolen or ill-gotten gains was really important, right? Hundreds of thousands of dollars, less so tens of millions people were getting 10 years is that at the time of the theft, the Bitcoin might've been very, very low value. If he was able to mine hundreds of Bitcoin a day, maybe it was worth 10 grand. Who knew that it was going to shoot up, you know, so exponentially high. So I'm wondering, and the court documents are silent on this, if that was a key contributor to the leniency, because even though he gave all the money back and only spent a small percentage of it, I would have been shocked that, you know, if the value of the Bitcoin was what it was in 2012 that it is today, it would have been a different conversation. So the end of the sentencing is in addition to the one year and one day, he has a supervised release or basically parole for three years. And there's your standard special conditions of supervision. He's got to perform 250 hours of community service. He has to submit um, basically all documentation and you know information about him to the probation officer for, the, for a while, can't hide from anything. He has to go to um, outpatient mental health treatment. He's got to participate in an outpatient uh, drug program. Uh, He's got to basically provide anything relating to his financials to his probation officer. And he is supervised um, by the district of his residence. Wherever he lives, he can move. They still have to watch him. And what's interesting, though, is the monetary penalties are very, very minimum. He's got to pay the $100 assessment, which I always find amusing. But there's a $10,000 fine. Now, we've noticed in other cases where people's fines were in the millions where they had to give back all the gains. And there was no way they could have ever really reasonably be expected to pay back that money. This guy probably has the money because he is, like I said, an active participant in a fairly, I think, successful real estate investment trust. But given his computer skills, uh, I'm sure he could generate some money pretty easily. So, you know, the court documents don't claim all the $3.4 billion that he forfeited. But I would argue that if you can get away with that and only pay a $10,000 fine, it's a win. Hey, so we, we, are to the, we are to the end of this case now. We're to the conclusion. I hope you enjoyed this. So let's go through our concluding thoughts. And then uh, I will take you out on our website and I'll give you a real quick 
couple second preview on what to expect next week. So for the conclusion, number one conclusion here, the dollar amount was freaking astounding. So this towered over any other case that we've looked at so far. When you're in 3.4 billion land, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, we also learned that even if it's through a dark web site dedicated to buying drugs, it's still a crime to steal from other criminals. Yeah, and Zong, he had a rough life. He had you know issues with family and the friends that he had, a lot of them hung around because of his money. He had issues in school, all led him to computers. And computers then led him to, well, cocaine and computers led him to the Silk Road. And once on the Silk Road, he then accidentally found this bug and made all his money. Yeah, um, we learned, you know, one of the old adages we like to use is whatever the case, however the complexity of the cybercrime, follow the money. Zong was most likely caught using the data that was ultimately seized from the Silk Road. And, you know, like any other kind of, I guess, Bitcoin, you know, the whole point of it is that the whole transaction is ledgered, right? So it should not have been that hard to figure out, um, you know, that ultimately, you know, putting in one Bitcoin nets you two is a pretty simple crime to figure out. But he, it was certainly a bug. And let's get into the bug. Yeah, and the, the bug is absurdly simple. You just double click the withdraw button. So if you put five Bitcoin in and you went withdraw, you would expect to get the five out. But he double clicked it and it would then give him 10. So he made five on the transaction and he just repeated that with a bunch of different accounts and made a ton of money. Yeah. And this is a case where I think it was noted it was the second largest forfeiture in the history of the U.S. government. 3.4 billion with a B. So the idea is that the United States made quite a bit of money on this forfeiture. Now, I don't know how much money they were obligated to give back to the criminals. Um, that were part of the Silk Road, it's actually an unknown. So either they're making money on the interest at the minimum or they've just seized it. I don't know, but it's an interesting sub-issue we can get into at a different time. And this is the first case where, and I picked it specifically for this, where you kind of cheer for the criminal. And it was fun and different in comparison to all the other cases that we have. So if you like this, you could do us a ton of favors just by, if you're on Apple Podcasts, leaving us a five-star review saying, hey, you know, great podcaster, you know, I'd love to see this other case, just anything. Or if you're on YouTube, go ahead and like and subscribe or whatever platform you're on. If you're on audio only, subscribe via your podcasting app. And that helps us out immensely. It just gives us more numbers. So that way when people search for true crime and computers that we pop up the list. So if you'd like to communicate with us or check out any of our social media links or our glossary that I've put a lot of time into or our YouTube videos, if you're on audio, go to our website because you can go, you can get everything from there. It's just spelled E-C-R-I-M-E-B-Y, Y is in yellow milk, T-E-S.com. And that's just ecrimebytes.com. And across the top, if you're on the desktop, are all the links that you should ever need for us. It has all our social media. If you're on your phone, it might look a little different. There's like a little three line hamburger up in the top. You click on that and a menu will drop down and you'll have all those options that I just talked about. And with that, do you have anything else you want to say, Seth? 
No, again, this is a, an interesting case. We rooted a little bit for the good guy here. So I hope everyone enjoyed it. And we're looking forward to some really interesting uh, episodes coming up. Yeah. And speaking of that next episode, this is going to be a really fun one because I picked a case where it's a corporate CEO who decides to SIM swap one of his competitors. And it's just an amazing case that you're just you're going to find interesting because we have we have articles written by the criminal himself after the fact that we're going to read for you. And it's just just amazing literature that you'll want to tune in for. We hope to see you there. And until next week, see ya.